turn to 1 Corinthians and chapter 13 probably one of the most well-known and famous passages in in the Bible certainly the New Testament one we've looked at before and it's one we refer you know refer to often but uh, it's time for a reminder it's it's good to go back to basics um, we'll read through the whole lot first um, we'll actually start from uh, just just right at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 Paul says now I will show you the most excellent way if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love I am nothing if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part but when perfection comes the imperfect disappears when I was a child I talked like a child I thought like a child I reasoned like a child but when I became a man I put childish ways behind me now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror then we shall see face to face now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now we'll note immediately the, the context of, of, of where Paul writes this. Um, he's, he's been writing to the Corinthians who have written to him with a long list of what about this, what about that. Um, some of the things they've written about, you know, is what, you know, what happens if, uh, you know, if you get converted but your husband or your wife doesn't and so they want to leave you because you're a Christian now, what do you do? Uh, all, all, loads and loads of practical questions that the Corinthian church have written to Paul wanting the answer to. And some of the questions were concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit hence talking about tongues and knowledge and prophecy 
And so Paul is writing to answer their questions about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, And he deals with that largely in chapter 12 and then in chapter 14. But he pauses in chapter 13. Obviously, when the letter was written, there were no chapters. The chapter headings were put in, you know, sort of like only a, you know, sort of not that long ago, actually, only, you know, a few hundred years ago. But the point is, he's dealing with the gifts of the Spirit in one clump. Then he comes on to love and then he goes back to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And what you can see is, is, is that chapter 13, the chapter on love, is sandwiched between two chapters on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's important because a sandwich, if you really think about it, another example of this fellowship's ability to bring food into everything, right? A sandwich ultimately exists for the benefit of what's in the middle of it, doesn't it? You know, I mean, a ham sandwich exists really for the ham because if the ham wasn't there, you haven't got a ham sandwich. Now, however nice the bread is, the really good bit is the ham. That, that's what the sandwich exists for. And in exactly the same way, what Paul is doing here at this point, he's reminding them that at the heart, at the, the bottom of absolutely everything, the most excellent way is the way of love. Now, he's not writing them to say, for instance, well, look, forget the gifts of the Spirit, love matters the most. He's not saying that. When it comes to um, following the Lord, it's like a train. The ability of this fellowship to bring trains into everything now. A train runs on two rails. It needs both rails. You can't take one rail away and then expect the train to keep running. And the two rails in the Christian life and they're what Paul is dealing with here, is power, the power of God, as manifested in the gifts of the Spirit, and the love of God, as we see here in 1 Corinthians 13. So we must never think, as some people do, there are some people who follow the Lord even, who don't like the gifts of the Spirit. They don't like talk about God's power. They don't like the idea of manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And what they try to do is that they go on about love so much that they almost say, no, our concern as Christians is love, not the gifts of the Spirit and power. That's incorrect. A train runs on two rails. Take either one rail away and the train is derailed. It's not going to get anywhere at all. In exactly the same way, a bird cannot fly on one wing And the two wings of the bird in following the Lord is the power of God on the one hand, as, you know, shown by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the love of God on the other, as shown in the way we live. Not what we do, but the type of people that we are. But what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 13, he's reminding them that the gifts, they must be there, the power of God, of course, Jesus is the power of God. We've been baptised with the Holy Spirit and with power, as Jesus said. But nevertheless, he's reminding them that if you have the power of God, and we want to have the power of God, we want more of the power of God, we want more of the gifts of the Spirit, not less. I mean, the Corinthians were overdoing certain gifts in certain ways. They were abusing the gifts. They were overdoing certain things. And Paul says, no, that needs calming down a little bit. Concentrate a bit more on this. 
But we don't want to go against God's power. We want God's power. We want the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But what Paul is saying is that you've got to realise that if you do have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, if you do manifest the power of God without our lives being characterised by the love of God, then something really horrible happens. And the something really horrible that happens is that we end up in our lives misrepresenting God and who he is and what he's like. It is certainly true that God is the powerful God. Of course, he made everything. He's omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. There is nothing that he can't do except the logically impossible. You know, I mean, he can't make a stone so heavy that he can't lift it, obviously. Uh, there are logically impossible things that God can't do, but the, it, that's because they're logically impossible. But when it comes to accomplishing, there is nothing that God cannot do because he has total power. Absolutely correct. But think for one moment, what would God be like if his power was the end of the story? You can see people in the world who are powerful and what happens in a human being if they're powerful but their power isn't balanced by humanity? You get malevolent dictatorship. You get people who trample all over everyone because their power consists in being able to control other people. And can you see that if we as Christians just demonstrate the power of God and not his love, we're actually presenting a picture of God that is closer to Satan. Satan loves power. He actually doesn't have much. Compared to God, he's got none at all. But Satan's the one who's into power you know, sort of wants to be seen as powerful and just walk over everyone. God isn't like that. God is love. And whereas the Bible obviously makes it very, very clear in the information it gives us about the nature of God, that obviously he's powerful, he's holy, he's righteous, and all, all these are different facets of the diamond. But when the Bible, in the only times it does, makes the statement, God is... So you get an all-encompassing word. Every time the Bible does that, it's always God is love. So that God's power is part of his love. His righteousness is part of his love. His holiness is an aspect of his love. And so therefore, because God fundamentally is love, and his power is an aspect of that. Therefore, we can understand why Paul, when talking about ministering God's power and when talking about the gifts of the Spirit, homes in to remind them that the most important thing is love. Not that you jettison power for love, of course you don't, we want both. But without the love, and the tragedy is, it is possible to manifest God's power in an unloving way. And so, therefore, the vital thing is that we see that love is absolutely at the heart. Love, if you like, is the jam in the sandwich. And without it, well, we're just not going to be showing people what God is actually like, what Jesus is actually like. Because God is love. 
and he so loved the world that he sent his only son and so therefore that that gives us the context if we actually start reading through now um, we'll 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 see the way Paul does it he, he says for instance if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels when you speak in tongues the gift of tongues it might be an earthly language it might be an angelic language the odds are you'll never know it might be an angelic language or human but what Paul's saying if you're not a loving person if your life is not characterized by love the love of God shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit as he says in Romans if that's not the case then uh, your tongues become a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal so whereas speaking in tongues within the context of worship corporately or private prayer whereas that is let you know sort of like praising the Lord and letting him know the you know the, the prayers of our hearts even though we don't actually know what the words mean that's what it should be if it's not characterized by a loving life well it's just a clanging gong a noisy symbol it, it, it's it's the opposite to what it should be um he, he says if i have the gift of prophecy well that's great isn't it the gift of prophecy i mean he you know he goes on to say um you know that prophecy is the most valuable of the gifts of all the gifts prophecy is the best because that is god speaking directly to his people through somebody that's an incredible gift that really builds people up it's a great gift wonderful but he says if i have the gift of prophecy he says if i have not love i'm nothing he says at the end of the day what's the point he says if i can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge you know this might be you know like someone really gifted in digging into the truth of the bible and unraveling it and understanding it and being able to pass it on if you like a bible teaching ministry he says i can have that you know i could have be the best bible teacher in the world academically speaking in my ability to get across the truth of the bible but he says if i have not love it's nothing and if you think about it if someone who's you know sort of like who's teaching others well if they don't have love that's all the worse because then they're not living out what they're teaching because if people teaching from the bible if the heart of what they're teaching isn't love then which bible are they teaching from for heaven's sake it's at the heart of everything because god is love he says if i have a faith that can move mountains now this this is the real mega miracle stuff this is this is you know the the gift of faith this is the gift of healing this is you know sort of like you know the kind of the, the turning water into wine the the stilling storms the raising people from the dead the, the 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 stone bonker healings the stone bonker miracles and he says that's great but he says if i if i can do that if the Lord's given me that gift and, and, and I'm actually being a channel of incredible miracles that are gobsmacking absolutely everyone he says um, if I have not love it's nothing you see it's showing God's power without his love now we want to show God's power oh to see miracles like that please Lord yes wonderful but if it's not characterised by us living through and in the love of God what's the point it's misrepresenting him it's showing him as a powerful God but not a loving God and uh, that's not someone you want to be close to people who are powerful but not loving don't get in their way don't get under their feet and don't turn your back on them 
And can you see that is the totally that's what Satan wants people to think God is like. God is love. He's not just power. Now this is this is interesting. He says, "If I give all I possess to the poor, uh, but have not love, I gain nothing." Now you think, well, here's someone giving all their money away, being sacrificial to the nth degree. Can you do that without that coming out of love? No, surely not. Well, Paul says you can. See, we can give from wrong motives. We can give sacrificially from wrong motives. We can do it, uh, you know, sort of like trying to make sure that people know we're doing it. You know, we can do it for, for self-glory. We can do it for self-righteousness. And Paul is saying, if that's the motive, it's nothing. If it's coming out of love, then it's, it's just being given to wherever the need is because God wants you to. That, that's fantastic. But it is sobering to think, isn't it? You know, that sort of like we can even, you know, sort of like sacrificial aspects of our lives can be the wrong motive. So Paul says, be careful. Make sure it's coming out of love. Because if it isn't, what's the point? You know, I mean, if you're giving really sacrificially just so other people think, oh, isn't he giving sacrificially? Well, I mean, that's daft because then you're going without all those nice things down here plus the fact you've lost your reward in heaven. Because we only get rewarded in heaven for the things that we've genuinely done as unto the Lord, not for the, the glory, you know, not for the thanks and the praise of other people. And, you know, that was the thing about the, you know, the Pharisees, wasn't it? Jesus said, they have their reward. He says, they do all their giving in the marketplace, everyone sees, and says, oh, how generous they are. They do all their praying in the marketplace, so everyone can say, oh, how spiritual they are. When they're fasting, they go around saying, oh dear, I feel so ill because I'm fasting. So everyone knows, oh, how, how spiritual they are. And Jesus says they've had their reward. I mean, that's it. They did it so that other people looked on and said, oh, aren't you spiritual? Well, when people have looked on and said, oh, aren't you spiritual? That's it. So, you know, whatever you're being spiritual about, I mean, you know, sort of being, being sacrificial isn't easy. So, I mean, aren't we twits? if we're going to be sacrificial from wrong motives because then we get the worst of both worlds there's not even a reward waiting in heaven for us then that's crazy but then ultimately and this is incredible Paul says if I surrender my body to the flames but have not love I gain nothing he's talking about martyrdom there I mean martyrdom is alien to us in, in this I mean many, many Christians are being martyred in different parts of the world we're aware of that but of course it, it it, it's very hard to make that real if, if you're not actually living in, in, in actual danger of it. The early Christians did. And, um, and Paul says, ultimately, even martyrdom. You can even step into the flames and be doing it thinking, oh, people will remember me as being ever so spiritual. You know, uh, but the... the the chances are, I mean, but but for the grace of God, that wouldn't be me. I'd, I'd be vanishing over the horizon in the other direction. Um, you know, I I, I don't think I, I'm my cowardice. I think would override my self righteousness. I, I pray by the grace of God that if we ever face this, we'll be able to give our lives for Jesus. But nevertheless, can you see Paul is saying that even if you know, even if you're in a position 
where you're actually willing to be a martyr if it's not coming out of love um, then it's no good it's no good and in those verses what what Paul has done he's he's outlined what love isn't necessarily I say isn't necessarily because these things we've looked at might be love because after all if you're living the life of love and speaking tongues that's brilliant um, if you're living the life of love and prophesy that's fantastic if you're living the life of love and can open the Bible to people that's fantastic if you're giving if you can work miracles uh, you know if you you know sort of like even a called upon to be martyred if all that is coming out of love that's fantastic so these things might well be love but of course the great danger is it is so easy to see when those things are present and to assume by definition that is anyone living like this is necessarily loving the Lord it's not the case Paul says you can have all that you know and we all know don't we you know in our hearts the tendency to be spiritual for wrong reasons and it's something that all the time we just have to be praying that the Lord will keep showing us and you know I, I mean you know even even when maybe we do things and it is genuinely done because we love the Lord how easy it is for that little bit of oh you know wasn't that good that I did that and immediately the pride starts to come in well we, we must just lift that up to the Lord and keep turning away from it but the important thing to understand is that if, if the sandwich hasn't got the jam in the middle then it ain't no jam sandwich and in the same way if we're all spiritual and, and gifts of the spirit and haven't really got that love of God in our hearts towards him and towards other people as well well then we're not really being you know sort of like disciples in the way that he wants us to be it might be all very powerful it might be all very vocal but if it's not loving then, then there's just no point then he moves on to say what love definitely is. All right, so let's 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 go through this. He says love is patient. Um, you know, it's love is patient. Um, there's a tendency, isn't it, for us to say we only get impatient because other people are so trying. <laughs> Um, the truth of the matter is no they're not trying you're impatient um, they're not trying I'm impatient and, and it's actually by bringing trying people along that the Lord deals with our impatience isn't it that's how he does it um, so love is patient and as we're going through this it's, it's, it's really good to, to, to all the time be bearing in mind that this isn't just how we ought to be towards other people this is how God is towards us because it's his love we're talking about here throughout this passage the word love in the Greek is agape now the Greek has various words for love we just have one in our language but the Greek has various words different words for the love between a husband and wife and you know love you know sort of like family love father to child but the early Christians when they wanted a, a word that described the love of God they, they grabbed the word that wasn't used that much it was agape and the closest you can get to it is a completely self-giving love it's a love that is concerned only with the object of its love um, and that's the word used here it's 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 the love of God so it's good to know God is patience if God wasn't infinitely patient with me 
I wouldn't have a chance. He wouldn't have brought me into the kingdom and now I mean he wouldn't be keeping me in the kingdom. And he certainly wouldn't put up with me in eternity in heaven. But because God is patient, I'm saved. That's good to know. Love is kind. Kindness is what you do for people. Kindness is, is all the time thinking, what can I do that's going to be the best for people? If Jesus was anything, he was kind. Um, in the Old Testament, there's that psalm that says, your loving kindness is better than life. And, and that sums God up, his loving kindness. Kindness is part of love. If you love someone, you're kind. If you're not being kind to someone, you're not loving them. And so love is kind. And we should be kind people. Some people are horrible, aren't they? You know, they're just not very nice people. Well, in, indeed, that's probably what we were. But we shouldn't be that now because Jesus has changed us. Because the Holy Spirit, the love of God, has been shed abroad in our hearts, as Paul says, by the Holy Spirit. Um, it does not envy. Now, why, why doesn't love envy? Well, because envy is when you're motivated purely by what you want and having ill feelings towards someone else because they've got something that you'd like, you haven't got it, so you have bad feelings towards them because they've got it. So en envy always comes out of greed, envy always comes out of self-obsession, envy always comes out of me, number one, you know, numero uno. That's, and that is the essence of sin. That is the essence of our rebellion against God. So love, love doesn't envy because it, it's, it's too busy wanting the best for people. I mean, you know, sort of like, if you've got something I haven't got, you know, I, I, I mean, that, that I, I should be pleased. I, I should be thrilled for you. And that, that's love. Not, oh, it's not fair, why then not me? You know, if, if you're blessed, I should be blessed. Never mind whether I'm sharing in that blessing. But if you're blessed, that, that's got to be enough, isn't it? That's how God is. He just wants to bless us. He's not in this for what he can get out of it. God's in this for what he can give and what he has given to us already. By the same token, Paul says, it does not boast. This is just the flip side of envy, isn't it? Envy is when you're sour grapes because someone else has got something that you haven't got. Now the flip side of that coin is when you think you've got something that others haven't and you want to shout it around. Hey, look at me. You know, I'm bigger than you. I'm better than... Whatever. I've got more power than you. I earn more than you. Whatever it is. Boasting is just, you know, envy kind of like, you know, hides in a corner kind of like, you know, it's rather miserable, isn't it? thinking nasty thoughts towards the people who've got what you haven't got. But boasting, that's, hey, look at me, that's, that's blatant. People who boast don't envy other people. They want to lord it over because they think they've got everything anyway. Well, love isn't like that. Can you imagine if God was boastful? I mean, it'd be stupid, wouldn't it? Because if, if God was boastful, why would he want to boast to us? You know, I mean, if I think I'm a bit of all right, 
you know, I, I, I don't want to go out and tell the cat. I want to go and tell other people. Because there's, there's no joy for me. I mean, a cat is, oh, you are wonderful. I mean that, because it's not my kind. And if, if God wanted to be boastful, well, he's not going to want to boast to us. I mean, we're the equivalent of the cat. If God wants to boast, he'd have to go and find another God. You can only boast to someone who is your equal or you think you're, you know, who's maybe a bit above you. Well, therefore, by definition, because God is the one true God, there is no other. God is not boastful. But, you know, it's, it's a characteristic of the human heart, isn't it? You know, wanting to lord it over people and look at me and, oh, it's dreadful. And, 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 and then he says, and this is kind of like the, the you know, you've, you've got envy, boasting, and now you've got like the foundation. If you like, they're two things, this is the foundation, it's, it, you know, they're both built on. It's not proud. And that's the point, it's not proud. Um, love doesn't want to say, hey, look at me. Because love's too busy looking at you and uh, loving you. I mean, you know, sort of, again, if God was proud, well, I mean, there'd be no salvation by definition. The essence of God is his humility. I mean, think about it. God, God was prepared. I mean, once we'd sinned against him, even in the light of that, he was prepared to become a human being. Now, that is, that's an act of humility beyond anything we can understand. The mere fact of, 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 of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, becoming a human being, that is a step down of an order that we can't begin to even approach. That's humility. And if, if he'd become the most powerful, richest, popular human being who'd ever existed, that would still have been a come down. To come down from God to being the most powerful human being who'd ever lived, that is still a come down when it's God doing it. But he didn't. He became poor. He became a Jew, a despised race at the time. They still are. And he was willing to live a life of rejection, rumour, innuendo, and to die horribly on a cross as a criminal. That's humility. That, that, that is the exact opposite of pride. And um, that's, that's how the Lord is. Then Paul says, it is not rude. Uh, love, love doesn't stick its tongue out at people, if you see what I mean. Um, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said about, you know, don't, don't call anyone fool. You know, if you call them fool, then you're, you know, you're, you're being prepared for hellfire, as it were. Now then, elsewhere, Paul writes to Galatians, and he says, you foolish Galatians, who have bewitched you, because false teaching are coming. But of course, what it's talking about here is name-calling. Name it's name-calling. Um, and in the sense that the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And, uh, you know, sometimes people are just foolish. But when Jesus says about not calling someone a fool, he's talking about in the sense that when we use words in order to demean people. And that's what rudeness does. 
rudeness if you're rude to somebody I mean you know there are different kinds of rudeness there's the actual you know like deliberate name calling when you just want to hurt or demean someone but then there's offishness that's rude as well offishness sometimes people are just offish they're rude you know you talk to them and, and they hardly answer or you know they're, they're they're sort of like you know very curt with you all, all that is rudeness but what it all has in common is it demeans the person who's on the receiving end of the rudeness thus elevating the person who's dishing out the rudeness because if i'm actually doing a name calling thing I'm actually trying to use words to demean you and of course to the extent that you're demeaned I'm towering above you aren't I you know that's that you know sort of what you might call you know sort of like when you give someone a tongue lashing and uh, trying to demean somebody and, and we all know how words can, can can have tremendously bad effect on people you can hurt someone so much with words um, and yet on the other hand if it's just the case that you know that sort of like I just haven't got any time for you at the moment you know sort of like you talk and, and I'm rude in the sense of ignore you or something then in exactly the same way that's I haven't got time for you and it's the same thing it's putting you down because I, I think I'm so great so when when we're rude in whatever form it takes it's the same thing it's 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 a, a manifestation of pride and it, it's it's a complete disregard for the person who is receiving our rudeness um, and in, in James James talks about you know sort of like our tongues that at one moment can be blessing God and then the next moment cursing men made in his image and of course what he's talking about there is that you can't really seriously be worshipping God as who he is in all his glory whilst you're being rude and demeaning other human beings who have been made in his image it's a nonsense and to the extent that I ever attack the likeness of God in human beings then I'm attacking the likeness of God himself and this is why it is so important that at all times you know that that you know that we are opposite to being rude that we're polite people even if you might be having to confront someone you know you might have to be complaining you know, or you know sort of like about service in a shop maybe can always be done politely so it doesn't mean being big wimp it doesn't mean that you know that Christians never open their mouths in protest quite the contrary but if we do then it's always done politely so in our dealings with close friends family fellowship or, or people at our work or maybe just just people you know sort of like who we um you know sort of like don't actually know that that person who's just cut you up you're going to be rude to them because you can be rude with your fingers we all know that can't we um we we can be rude without actually having the chance to deliver that rudeness to them and, and so politeness um, is 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 all because that is what God is like. God has never been rude to us. That, that's why God never demeans us. Some of the you know like you know the practices that go on in some churches. You know people like you know sort of like jumping around like rabbits and and, and lying on the floor like snakes. I, I mean all that is demeaning. God God doesn't want to demean us. He'll convict us. He'll humble us. But that's entirely different. 
people should never be demeaned. Um, he says it's not self-seeking. By which self-seeking, I mean it's not it's not wrong to self-seek in the sense that we have our lives, and obviously it's not it's not wrong for me to you know to sort of like spend money on myself. You know, I mean it's not wrong for us to tend to ourselves. I mean, you know, I mean, if 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 we didn't self-seek a certain amount, boy, wouldn't we smell? <laughs> Obviously, we've got to give a certain amount of time to ourselves. But self-seeking, in this sense, is when you put what you need and what you have to do for yourself before anyone else, and they don't enter the equation. So that other people, you know, sort of like get the crumbs under the table. When I finish feasting upon looking after myself then you know sort of others might get the crumbs under the table that's not that's self-seeking that's not how it should be it means at any moment put others before yourself that's what god is like god god doesn't seek his own god gives and gives and gives it says it's not easily angered in the old testament it tells us that, that 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 he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love Often we're slow to steadfastly love and abounding in anger, aren't we? Love is not easily angered. And because uh, if God was easily, I mean, if we easily angered God, I mean, we'd have been stamped out of existence years ago, wouldn't we? How quick we are sometimes, as it were, stamp other people out of existence in our reaction to them because of anger. Again, in James, the letter of James, he says, the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. And one of the curses, isn't it, of being a Christian, potentially, is that once we become Christians, we can somehow, you know, sort of justify our anger by saying, well, of course, that person, what they're doing is wrong. They need sorting out. Now then, someone may need lovingly correct, you know, need to be lovingly corrected. But that's a big difference to letting them have it because they've got up our nose, isn't it? And uh, anger is, you know, because anger... we're out of control if we give in to anger. Very hard to measure anger. And Paul says, you know, sort of like, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. If, if ever you're angry about something, make sure that you go to bed after you've sorted that out. That, that's particularly relevant to husbands and wives and, and, you know, like families and things like that. Don't, don't go to sleep with anger in your heart because it festers, it grows. And that's where Paul says, and give no opportunity to the devil. Satan gets in where there's anger. Well, you know, because Satan Satan is the opposite of love. And so where there isn't love, Satan is, is, is just going to be in there. It's a, that's just the diet that, that, that he thrives on. And Paul says it keeps no record of wrongs. I mean, this, this is at the heart of the Christian life, isn't it? God doesn't keep a record of our wrongs. He's forgiven them. And because of that, we're going to heaven. If it wasn't for that, we'd still be going to the lake of fire. Therefore, because God keeps no records of my wrongs, I better make sure I don't keep a record of anyone else's wrongs. And it's only a fortnight ago we did a study on forgiveness, looking at that very thing. I've been forgiven a debt of millions and millions and millions of pounds. The worst you can do against me is maybe a tenner. Well, I've got to forgive you that. I can't, having been let off a gift of millions of pounds, call in debts of a tenner. 
So love keeps no records of wrongs. Forgiveness, that's at the heart. That is what God is like. And it says love does not delight in evil. The more we love, the more we'll hate sin. We won't hate sinners, but we'll hate sin. Love delights in when righteousness breaks through, when holiness breaks through, when the nature of God breaks through. So there'll never be delighting in evil. Sometimes we do, but the Holy Spirit convicts us, and so we have to, to put that right. And he says, but rejoices with the truth. Love will always rejoice with what's true, because God, God is truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So anything of deceit, anything of lies. This is why the Bible says that we, we shouldn't lie, Christians shouldn't lie. Lying is sin. Deceit is sin. It's the opposite of what God is. And love will always rejoice in the truth, even in hard truth. But wherever there's truth, love will rejoice. And it says that, that, that love always protects, because God always protects us. If we love, we'll be protective towards people. Now, you can be protective in a wrong way. You know, you can, you know, sort of like, you know, there is a kind of a twisted, you know, like the way that some mothers protect their children, and it's almost like, you know, it's perverse, isn't it? It's kind of locked, they're, they're really locking their children up to themselves. That's not what we're talking about here. But the point is that, you know, in being protective, you know, that even, even if people need correcting, you don't, you know, you want to make it as easy as possible. Or, you know, if there's anything that might be hurtful for someone, you want to, if that's possible, to spare them from it. It's an attitude of protectiveness. You protect people you love. Um, it says love always trusts. It doesn't necessarily mean you always trust everyone. That would be silly, wouldn't it? I mean, Jesus wouldn't trust himself to men, John said. But it always trusts in God. Always trust that everything is going to work out according to God's will eventually. And it says, always hopes. I have faith in God now, but my hope is for what God is going to do in the future. And because God always has my best at heart, I'm always going to be living in hope. And it says, always perseveres. Love doesn't give up. Love doesn't give up. And can you see the sort of like the picture that that paints of you know you know a rather light a rather positive a rather it's a far cry from the oh oh dreadful things going to happen and it, can you see it's it's a much more you know light and airy outlook all the time looking for what god's going to be doing next it's positive it's not negative um the life of love sees the uh, the silver lining round the cloud um, you know, sort of some bit of say every cloud has a silver lining, all right, and that's what love sees. Other sometimes people they don't see that you know they say every silver lining's got a cloud. You know, I mean, some people if they've you know sort of like you know drunk half their drink, they'll say um, you know sort of like you know I've I've already have half, but others will say oh, it's half left. You see, it's all the question of, but if if we're really looking to the Lord then we really are going to see that every cloud has a silver lining. So that optimistic outlook will always be there. And then he says that love never fails. And he comes on to the point about the gifts of the Spirit 
and again he's trying to get the Corinthians to get the gifts of the spirit and the whole power thing into perspective and to make them realize that the love thing is of a different order the gifts the power is important but the love thing is of a different order and what he goes on to say is to make them realize that the gifts of the spirit by definition are only for life in this world at this time so the point is that prophecies are going to cease there'll come a time we won't speak in tongues in heaven be no need to there won't be words of knowledge when we're in heaven why not because we'll have access to everything Jesus knows anyway so the point is the gifts of the spirit by definition are only meant to be operating in a sinful world through sinners when perfection comes in the glorified state the gifts of the spirit are going to be irrelevant they'll have fallen they'll have just gone because they're not going to be part of that existence but the point is love still will be and that's why he says these things look prophecies will cease the gift of tongues will be stilled knowledge will pass away and he says look we know in part and we prophesy in part he says all this even when we're, you know even when we're doing the gifts of the spirit he says it's it's all tainted with our sinfulness it's all it's you know it's never 100 percent and he says to that extent it's it's incomplete it's imperfect and of course the day is going to come when everything that's imperfect is going to pass away and there'll be perfection because everything will be glorified like jesus and then and this this really does you know help the corinthians to get it in into perspective he uses the picture of an adult looking back to when he was a child and you know he says look you know when i was a child i, I spoke like a child i reasoned like a child i acted and lived like a child and that was relevant because i was a child but he says now i'm an adult i've put childish things away now what he's saying is that when we're in the glorified state when eventually we're with the lord in heaven and then the new heavens and the new earth when perfection has come that will be as it were the adult stage and he's saying in comparison the gifts of the spirit are rather childish he's not saying childish in the sense that you shouldn't use them but he's saying that they really are the you know the goo goo gaga stage of the christian life because every whole thrust of what he's saying is keep it all in perspective because these aren't going to last they're only for down here whereas love is forever what we do is only for down here because in the glorified state the things that need doing down here won't need doing up there but what we are our character will go on throughout eternity and so that is what paul is saying therefore if love is going to go on for eternity and the gifts of the spirit by definition are going to cease either when one the lord comes or two you die what's what's more important what's at the heart of things that which is going to last a few years or that which is eternal and the point is that love because it's eternal so he's saying to them well he's not saying forget the gifts not at all but he's saying perspective love love is the issue love is the heart 
of the Christian life. And then he says, now I know in part, this is all the imperfection of, of down here, but he says, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And he said, the day is going to come where I'm going to know the Lord as well as the Lord now knows me, because we're going to reach that perfection of the glorified state. And when we're there, the gifts of the Spirit will just be neither here nor there. Think of them almost like a booster rocket. You know, a rocket takes off from, you know, uh, sort of Cape Canaveral, and you've got a booster rocket, and that's just there to get it into orbit. That, that falls away, it's gone, it's done its job, it's irrelevant to the rest of the mission that that rocket is on. And in exactly the same way, the gifts of the Spirit, the power of God in that sense, will be the same. Just like a booster rocket to do a job but eventually that, that job will be done then it will fall away but what remains is the rocket itself as it were the love of God and then he goes on to say and now these three remain faith hope and love and he goes on to say there are three things that are going to last forever he says the gifts of the spirit they're not going to last forever all right he says but there are three things that are going to last forever faith is going to last forever he says hope is going to last forever and he says love is going to last forever. Why is faith going to last forever? Well because when we're in the glorified faith, we're going to, in the glorified state, we're going to trust Jesus in a way that we can't even think of now. We're going to trust him properly when we're in heaven. Well that, that's faith. Now hope, biblically, is certainty, it's faith for the future. Well, in eternity, I mean, technically, eternity doesn't have a future because it's endless. Well, it's not even endless. That's to misunderstand eternity. We can't understand eternity, all right? But the point is, hope is going to be there because the point is, throughout that eternity, we'll always be looking forward to more of the Lord tomorrow. But there won't be a tomorrow because it's eternity, it's timeless. But can you see that faith and hope are going to be there because there's still going to be a future tense to faith. There's always going to be what the Lord is going to do and hasn't done yet. And of course love is going to be there because um, God is love and because we'll love him as we ought to. When, when we get up there we will love him properly. But Paul says, but the greatest of those is love. And that's, that, that's the heart I've been saying the heart of the Christian faith quite deliberately because in the Western culture we associate the heart with love. And the heart of the Christian life is love. And as we've been going through this, we can kind of get an idea what we are in, in, in the natural. We can see what God naturally is and, and see that, that, that he wants us to become like him. Let me um, just, just go back to, um, to verse 4. And um, I'm, I'm just going to read verse 4 and 5 again. And I'm going to read it in a particular way and then repeat it. You'll, you'll get the message, all right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. 
Right, okay. Now, let's read it again, but slightly different. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. Jesus is not rude. Jesus is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered and he keeps no record of wrongs. He doesn't delight in evil, but Jesus rejoices with the truth. He always protects, he always trusts, he always hopes, he always perseveres. And just the beginning of verse 8, Jesus never fails. Right, read it one more time. I'm going to use my name, you use yours. Beresford is patient. Beresford is kind. You put your name in here. Beresford does not envy. He doesn't boast. He is not proud. This is kidding me with every word I'm reading. He is not rude. Beresford is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Beresford does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, he always trusts, he always hopes, he always perseveres. Beresford never fails. And there's no better way with, with this chapter to, to contrast just why we need the love of God to be shed abroad in our hearts. Because we can't be like that. We don't have it in us to be like that. Well, we do actually because Jesus is in us and because Jesus is in us he, he shares his life with us but it's only to the extent that we realise just naturally how unloving we are oh yeah you can be like loving to your family loving to your, your, your children and, and stuff like that to a certain extent but even there we all fall down but remember the test that Jesus gave was you know sort of like you know what you you love those who 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 are your friends so you know you love those who love you back and like you even the pagans do that he says here's the test love your enemies who was the last person who really annoyed you who was the last person who demeaned you at work quite deliberately who was the last person that you knew for a fact that they're backbiting about you do you love them that's the test and what's the answer? The answer is no. Of ourselves, no. But through the love of God, shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, yes, we can. Because it's the love of God within us. It's the love of Jesus within us and coming through us. And of course, at, at the heart of this is, 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 is the same, really the heart of everything. In the Christian life, Jesus says, "Look, if you're going to come, you know, come after me and follow me, well, you know, you've got to to take up your cross and follow me. And you know, you you take up your cross to go and die on it somewhere. That's what Jesus did. It's a sacrifice. It's a death to self. It's a saying no to self. It's a turning our back on self obsession and me, 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 me. And it's putting Jesus." And it's putting other people before ourselves. There's that, that, that old 
That's a cliche now, but it's very true. Joy, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. You know, and sort of like, you know, sort of what I might call, you know, the happy, you know, sort of like reasonably well-balanced Christian has, has probably got, got that order about right. You know, but put it the other way round. Yourself, others, Jesus, or that, that makes you a yodge. And, and, and yodges tend to be rather dour and unhappy all the time because, I mean, you know, to think about, I, mean, I suppose probably, I mean, unless maybe you've won the lottery and can, you know, sort of spend your life doing all the things you really want to do. I mean, maybe outside of that. And even people who do that say that it doesn't actually satisfy in the slightest. But the point is that most of us, we all know from experience, don't we, that when we look back on times when our main concern has been ourselves and we've we've just been thinking of me, 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 I know for a fact, because I can look back at simply a fact of my life, that whenever I go through stages like that, I'm not happy. It makes me very unhappy to think about myself all the time. But if I can get my mind on the Lord and on other people and, and just following him and serving people and just getting on with my life as a Christian, yeah, that's when that's when the fruit of the Spirit starts to take. And uh, yeah, so, so this is it, love. And it's what God's like. It's what we're not like. But it's what God is wanting to make us like and can make us like to the extent that we are prepared to, to turn away from self and to crucify self and to um, you know really sort of lay ourselves as it were on the altar of, um, of serving God so um, that's, that's the jam in the sandwich uh, plenty of gifts of the spirit we'd love to see much more yes we're not saying anything against that at all but without love it really is truly nothing because without love it's not actually showing the most important aspect of who God is and God is love and that's why we must be people who are living that life of love and the definition is here in 1 Corinthians 13